A woman was out golfing one day. She hit her ball into the woods. She went into the woods to look for it, and uh, she found a frog in a trap. The frog said to her, if you release me from this trap, I'll grant you three wishes. Now that we're in reality here, I'll keep on going. The woman freed the frog, and the frog said, thank you, but I failed to mention that there was a condition uh, to your wishes. Whatever you wish for, your husband will get ten times more and better. The woman said, that'd be okay. So her first wish, she wanted to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Frog warned her, you do realize that this wish will also make your husband the most handsome man in the world, an Adonis that women will flock to. The woman replied, that's okay, because I'll be the most beautiful woman and he'll only have eyes for me. So, Kazam, she's the most beautiful woman in the world. For her second wish, she wanted to be the richest woman in the world. Frog said, that will make your husband the richest man in the world and he'll be ten times richer than you. The woman said, that'll be okay because what is mine is his and what is his is mine. So, Kazam, she's the richest woman in the world. Frog then inquired about her third wish and she answered, I'd like him, I'd like to have a mild heart attack. (laughs) All right, open your Bibles on that spiritual note to Revelation chapter 3. And uh, we are continuing our series, the great, uh, a tour through, if you will, a book, the book of Revelation, part 5, and these things which are present, and uh, particularly verses 13 through 22, but I really want to kind of ramp up to that because the church right before this uh, is my favorite as we read through, of course, and uh, it may have perhaps been yours, but we've gone through Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia last week, and to the church in Philadelphia... Look at verse 12 of chapter 3, if you would. As uh, our master says, He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. Just so much sweet information here as we talk to the churches, and uh, particularly to this church. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God in my new name, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And just that sweetness of that that encouraging uh, uh, parting thought to this church and to those who are faithful in this church. Uh, Just some wondrous things. A future home for the church-age saints there at the New Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, and uh, as essential as as a pillar is to a building, so are the individuals that inhabit the New Jerusalem, and the Lord loves them. And so we've seen as we've gone through these churches, these are real churches that existed in real cities. Uh, they still exist now. We're in the church age with John. We're still in the church age for us. And so as we see these churches, we see uh, the different uh, features of these churches, the things that are reproved, the things that are encouraged. We realize that these things still exist. There's still churches uh, like this. The church at Philadelphia, present age for John, for us, a, a church with a great opportunity we saw. Uh, perhaps missions or ministry, a faithful church, uh, a church with only appearance of a little power, but because they've been faithful to the Lord, they've been given great opportunity and spiritual resource. They've kept his word, which is the key ingredient for everything else. Even their enemies, it said, will submit to them. They've obeyed Christ's command to endure. Uh, They have earned a crown. Uh, They have a future home in the New Jerusalem. And there has always been these kinds of faithful churches. And I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and we were just talking about uh, his experience as he's been traveling and attending at a different place and just kind of the nature of the churches and uh, was asking me some questions. I just, I just really feel it doesn't uh, take much for a church to change. 
And the Lord gives us these, uh, indicates these things uh, that, about churches that need to be corrected. We found as we've worked our way through that he said to one of the churches, uh, your deeds are better than they were in the past. So we know Christ is observing what's going on. And then we saw another church where he said, your deeds are not measuring up now. And so we know that it doesn't take much, but really the main ingredient is, uh, as we've talked about in our previous study, it's reading the word, understanding what the word says by what it means, and then taking uh, your understanding of that and putting it to work in your life. That's the easiest way for the Holy Spirit to get in control of a church, right? Because if each of the members are reading and understanding what it says uh, by what is uh, printed there, and then putting that to work in our lives, we allow the church to become really a functioning a part of the body of Christ because we understand that we're following what the Holy Spirit's desired for us to follow. And he also has one word for us, and that's found in the chapters of the book that you're reading now. And the final of the seven churches comes in chapter 3 and starts in verse 14 through the end of the chapter. And I'd like you to read that together with your open Bible there with me. I'm going to start in verse 14. I'm going to go all the way to verse 22 uh, there at the end. And uh, we'll come back then and talk our way through that, okay? So let's look at verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God says this, verse 15, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Verse 18. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore... Be zealous and repent. Behold, verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's stop right there. As we've gone through, this whole section, of course, deals with the church in Laodicea. And as we've gone through, we've given you some fast facts, and you can find these in your notes. Uh, you can copy some of these down. What kind of city is the city in Laodicea? Uh, first, uh, it's about 40 miles east of Ephesus and about 10 miles west of Colossae. It's a very tight relationship, we'll see in just a moment, between this church in Laodicea and the church of Colossae. Uh, the site of Laodicea is now a deserted heap of ruins. The church called Eski Hisar, or Old Castle. There's a picture here in just a minute that we can show. Uh, Laodicea became extremely wealthy uh, during the Roman period. Uh, Laodicea was known for its black wool industry, uh, manufactured garments from the black wool produced by the sheep in the surrounding area. It's also a center for banking, uh, commerce, as well as a medical school known particularly for its ISAV. The city was destroyed by an earthquake in AD 60, along with Colossae and Heriopolis, uh, but it was able, because of its wealth, to refuse aid from Rome for the rebuilding. And uh, we see that, and, and I think you can see some comparisons right now as the Lord made his indictment to them, referring back to some of the, the things that the city was known for. Uh, self-sufficient attitude we see here in verse 17 as well in the people. The water of Laodicea, because of its volcanic proximity, was particularly nasty to drink. It flowed through an underground uh, aqueduct to the city. 
And while the hot springs of Heriopolis were famous for their medical properties and the cold water of Colossae was surprised for its purity, the tepid waters of Laodicea were very um, abundant and bad. And so that can give you some things. You can copy some of those down if you'd like in your notes. I'll wait just a second while you uh, finish that up. If you look at verse 14, if you would, chapter 3, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. And we know who that is, right? Because each message is from whom? It's from Jesus, right? These are his churches. He gave his life to, to uh, begin the church, uh, to set the church up, to give it power. Uh, and so each message is to uh, the messenger of, the ch- of each church, which we know is the pastor. Angels are not in charge. or The, the elder, the angels are not in charge of the church. Uh, people are, and so this is a message to those who lead and uh, to pass on and for the church in general. This church was probably established by Epaphras, as was the church in Colossae, and we're going to see that in just a minute. If you turn to Colossians chapter 1, hold your finger right there. Turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Both of these churches seem to have the same type of trouble. They're only 10 miles apart, and that's an incorrect understanding of Christ as creator and not as created being. And you'll see the same types of emphasis uh, towards both of these churches. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. You can turn there if you would. Yeah, Paul is teaching and giving them doctrine, uh, what is right, the correct way to think. And uh, he says in verse 15, as speaking of Christ, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It's Colossians 1, 15. Verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You kind of wonder, you know, what's the setting? Well, you've got to realize that there's, there's issues here. And Paul direct, as Paul goes topically through some of these things, you realize he's, he's dealing with issues that are inside the church. These are real people who have real questions, and Paul deals with them and deals with the circum- circumstances of each church. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul just continues to... Uh, uh, make it clear Christ's position, uh, his uh, existence from eternity past, and his active interaction with creation. Verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will, become, will come to have first place in everything. Uh, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, there's so much we could say there uh, about that, of course, and take uh, weeks to talk about that. those passages. They're marvelous. But the Apostle Paul does not seem to have uh, visited Laodicea at the, at the time he wrote Colossians 2.1, but we know that uh, there tends to be the same uh, theme for both. And um, uh, Epaphras, Tychicus, Onesimus, Mark seem to have been the early messengers of the gospel there. So I love the interaction here as you realize there's 10 miles apart. Uh, I'd like you to turn to Colossians 1.7. Colossians 1.7. Actually, one f- back up to verse 5, actually. And uh, you'll see as uh, Paul's not visited Laodicea, but he wrote Colossians 2.1. You'll see who they're directed to, and I think that'll be an encouragement to you. Colossians, and that's why I can say some of the same problems in both of uh, these churches. Colossians 1.5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, 
even as it has been doing in you since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as, it, just as you learned it from who? Epaphras, right? Epaphras is the one who gave the gospel there, perhaps planted the church there, our beloved fellow bondservant who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And so Paul had not visited, but Epaphras had, and Paul was referring to the gospel they received from him. Now turn to Colossians 4, 7, if you would. And because of the proximity of the two churches, uh, we can learn a lot about each one just by doing some cross-referencing here. And we'll get some uh, connection here. I think you'll, you'll see how this works. Colossians 4, 7. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond servant in the Lord, will bring you information. Verse 8, For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, and you probably remember Onesimus, right, from the book of Philemon. Onesimus was the slave that ran away and came to faith uh, with Paul in Rome and was... Uh, I uh, was able to go back, of course, and be reestablished as uh, a brother in Christ, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greeting, and also Barnabas's cousin Mark, about whom you receive instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And just as a side note, I realize this is not connected to this, but this kind of tells you, this is just a thread, threads that go all through the New Testament. It just talks about the church, see. No such thing as somebody just kind of floats around and just goes from church to church. Not in the New Testament anyway. All right? You've got letters. You've got recommendations. You've got people saying, hey, I'm, I'm commending him to you. He's coming to minister to you, but he was here with me, and, and he was faithful. So you, you kind of see in kind of the modern age of Christianity, we've kind of lost that idea of all together with one accord, right? But in the New Testament, there wasn't such a thing. Uh, there was lots of recommendations and commendations and also warnings. Hey, watch out for these two guys. It caused me a lot of trouble. And I had to put this guy out of the church because he was difficult. So you see those types of things here. And that's just a footnote. Verse 11. Also, uh, Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they've proved to be an encouragement to me. So they're Jews. Now, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greeting, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify, verse 13, for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So you see this connection. He's been ministering in all these places, not just Colossae. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. <clears throat> so obviously... Uh, church meeting there and uh, a woman's home there in Laodicea, verse 16. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans. So, what's the first clue we have? Uh, Paul's talking about the lordship of Christ. He's talking about Christ's position as uh, alive from eternity past, that he wasn't a created being. And he says, look, when you read it here in Colossae, I want you also to send it to Laodicea, and I want them to hear it too. All right? Have it read in the church of Laodiceans. And, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, we don't have a book in the Bible that's, that says uh, from the Laodiceans. You don't think we do, but we actually do. Do you know what book that is? Somebody know? Besides Jim? <laughs> it's the book of Ephesians. That's pretty cool, I thought. As you uh, read, if you, if, especially if you have a study Bible, if you read the intro to Ephesians, you'll realize that Ephesians was a cyclical letter. That just means that it was sent one place, but not meant to stay there. It was meant to be read in other places, as were many of the letters in the New Testament. 
the, the, the letter to the church in Colossae was also that way, wasn't it? Because Paul said, don't let it stay there. As soon as you're done reading it, pass it on to uh, your sister church in Laodicea. All right. So the, this Ephesian letter that we know, it was a cyclical letter. And the earliest manuscripts did not say, in fact, to the Ephesians, uh, meaning to them alone. It was probably sent first to the Ephesians and then to the Laodiceans. All right. So verse 17, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I just love the personal nature of those comments, don't you? Uh, it reads very much like a letter that we would write, uh, things that we would think, things that we would interact with, with other believers, things that we would... Uh, comment on, and Paul does very much the same thing, very close to churches, shared similar difficulties, and uh, Paul writes to uh, the Colossians and to the Laodiceans and to the Ephesians and lets them hear many of these things, and these churches shared some of the same difficulties. Now, let's get back to the book of Revelation, if you would, as we get a little bit of cross-referencing. This is the fun of Bible study, and that's what I encourage you to do as you go through, and we've kind of set it as our theme, that uh, we're going to study Revelation as you would study it. Uh, just there in your in your home or or uh, in your office, as you open it up, you can kind of kind of jump around. You can see these things. You can explain these things and uh, get clarity on them as you chase around these names. And that's always that I like to do this. This is always as I read through uh, a book of the New Testament. If I see some names, I would jot them down, find out where else they're mentioned uh, in the New Testament, find out if they're the same people, and then you find out a whole lot more about the book and about the nature of the difficulties or, or uh, successes and, uh, and uh, victories inside the church. And you could do that as well. So we're going to keep going through and uh, working through the verses. Let's go to verse 14 of Revelation 3, if you would. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation, of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, Christ knows all their deeds. We've seen that as with the other churches. And, of course, the water in the area uh, is uh, being referenced here as it talks about the church, isn't it? As we know, the water was nasty and people didn't like the taste of it and it was warm. And so they would spit it out. They were used to drinking uh, from, from the cold springs of Colossae. They come to Laodicea. They take a big old drink and think how nasty that is and expel it. And this is exactly how the Lord uses. These are the illustrations the Lord uses as he's talking about the church. And uh, this is likely a misunderstanding of the person of Christ resulted in an unregenerate church. And people were used to drinking the water and they drink this one and they see it's nasty and they spit it out. This is the same way uh, as Christ is looking at this church. Uh, as he's refreshed by some of them, he is not refreshed by this one. Uh, they're not hot. They're not, they're not on fire with a zeal for Christ, which is really the essence of a true believer, right? Someone who loves the Lord, is committed to the Lord, desires to know the Lord. Uh, not that they walk perfectly, and not that they uh, don't have any difficulty, but they're new nature. They're made new, and inside they desire to know the Lord and walk with him. That is the nature of a true believer, okay? And uh, the recipient of saving faith looks like this. Now, they weren't that. Uh, they were not cold, openly rejecting Christ. They were lukewarm. They were hypocrites. They claimed to know Christ, but not really belonging to him. Listen, Christ does not spit out those who are what? Truly his, right? And this is the essence. We, we've got to pick up on language here. If you want to kind of uh, get an, an idea of what kind of church we're talking about, then listen to the language that Christ uses as he speaks to the church, and you realize he's not talking to uh, believers. He's talking to non-believers. <clears throat> Verse 17, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have, no need, and have need of nothing, there's that independent spirit uh, reflected in the church as it was in the, in the community. 
And you do not know that you're wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. At least these are not words that Christ used to describe those who are clothed in a white garment, right? Those who have inherited the kingdom with Christ. Um, these are people who don't have those things. Okay, so he's talking to an unregenerate church. A prosperous city, characteristic of the church as well. Christ never makes those comments about those who are his. Now, if we understand the context, that the context of the passage is to an unregenerate church, then the next illustrations make sense, though perhaps not as we've learned them uh, maybe in the past. Now, I was just, I was studying my office a little while ago, and, you know, it's sometimes hard to determine that, isn't it? Individually, whether or not they're regenerate, isn't it? It's, I mean, at first glance, and certainly with our, uh, you know, our uh, limited ability to, re- to judge someone and really to evaluate whether there's fruit or to know what's going on, uh, it's kind of hard to judge that. We're so used to people's profession, right, which is, well, I went forward, you know, 25 years ago, or I came forward yesterday, or I, you know, I've always known the Lord or whatever, and we just don't have uh, sometimes the discernment anymore to just kind of say, okay, this, this person is not regenerate. I just kind of jotted down some things that don't prove salvation. Okay, these things don't prove they won't be in your notes. You can copy them on the back if you want. These things don't prove salvation. I've taught a lesson on this, an extended lesson on this before, and I just kind of pulled out some of the points that just kind of observable phenomena that do not prove that you're a believer. And these can be true in your life and still not be a believer. Number one, visible morality. Visible morality does not prove or disprove you know Christ as your Savior. Some people are just good people. We've talked about this before, haven't we, a couple Sundays ago. Some are religious, who on the outside appear very moral. They can be that way and not be regenerate. Some people are honest and upfront in their dealings, right? They're grateful and kind, and they have some kind of external morality. They, uh, they're loving and sympathetic types of people. But of loving and serving God, they don't feel anything and they don't do anything. And uh, whatever they do or don't do, it doesn't involve God. Uh, they'll be honest in their dealings with everyone except God. Uh, they wouldn't rob anyone, and they're thankful and loyal to everyone but God, right? And uh, they speak contemptuously and reproachfully of no one but God. They have good relationships with everyone but God. They clean up their lifestyle uh, by reformation, uh, not regeneration. It's a visible type of morality, but it doesn't mean salvation. Okay, so visible morality doesn't prove or disprove salvation. You can't tell just by that that somebody's born again. And number two, second thing that doesn't prove or disprove saving faith or, or uh, salvation is intellectual affirmation. Intellectual affirmation. You can know somebody who knows everything about it. If you watch any of the documentaries on Discovery Channel or any of those things that talk about revelation of the life of Jesus, listen, you'll talk about, you'll, you'll hear all kinds of experts uh, in their fields who know everything about the life of Christ and are not regenerate. They know all the information. Intellectual information doesn't mean anything. Familiarity with the truth um, is definitely needed for salvation, but it doesn't equal salvation. You can know all about God. You can know all about Jesus. You can you know he came into the world and died on the cross and that he rose again. You can know a lot of the details of his life, which many of them do, and still reject Christ. There are many people who know the scripture, intellectual affirmation, but are bound for hell because they don't believe what they know to be true. Okay? So intellectual affirmation means nothing. Uh, visible morality by itself, either of those things by themselves mean nothing. Number three, religious involvement. That is not necessarily proof of a regenerate life, religious involvement. Second Timothy 3.5 says that there are people who have a form of godliness but without its power. That's the idea. Uh, there's an empty kind of religion, a ritualistic, um, obligatory, habitual, cultural kind, if you would, religion. People just go through uh, the motions. 
but it doesn't save because the thing that's most necessary is missing, and that's the new life, see? Exchanging your life for the one he offers, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Religion without regeneration. Religious uh, involvement does not prove salvation. Can't say that they're regenerate just because there's religious involvement. Number four, active ministry. Active ministry by itself doesn't prove salvation. There are many biblical examples of this. All of Tarsus, right? Before he became Paul, very active, right? Active in killing and persecuting Christians, and he thought he was saved, and he thought he was doing God, uh, God's work, didn't he? That he was sent out to do the work of the Lord. Judas was a disciple. He had active ministry, didn't he? Not regenerate. Matthew 7 says there'll be many who didn't do all those other things, and they prophesied, and they cast out demons, and they called on Jesus and said he was Lord, and had the right names for him, right? But that was not equal to salvation. Active ministry is not the same as being regenerate. You can be a moral person. You can give intellectual affirmation of the things in the Bible. You can have extensive religious involvement, even an active ministry. These things are not necessarily proofs of regeneration. It's hard to tell, isn't it? Because those things are the things we look at as proof. Number five, conviction of sin. Conviction of sin. That's not proof for salvation. There are many people who feel bad about sin. The world is filled with people who are dealing with tremendous guilt uh, because of sin. A number of years ago, it could be said that a large number of people were going to psychologists who were dealing with guilt. I still think that that's the case, that people go to psychologists many times uh, who, who have to deal with guilt. Not every time, but certainly it is, uh, I think, predominant. A lot of books written about that phenomenon, but psychologists don't have an answer for guilt, see? So now we transfer guilt. It's not your fault. Everybody's a victim, right? Nobody's responsible for what they do. It's, it's because of something that happened to you, right? But people feel bad. So instead of teaching biblical uh, freedom from guilt through forgiveness, people expect the pastor to teach self-esteem and feel-good religion. Say, I want to feel good about myself. I don't want to feel bad about my sin. And uh, the Holy Spirit continues to convict people of their sin, and some do feel bad about it, but they won't respond to God in true repentance. A couple of responses, right? To uh, There's sorrow that leads to death about sin, right? That doesn't involve repentance, and there's sorrow that leads to life, right? Uh, through forgiveness and confession of sin. So... Just conviction of sin by itself is not proof of regeneration. Number six, assurance. I love this one because this is something that people say many times, and perhaps you've heard this. Um, some say, I must be a Christian because I feel like I'm one. Right? I know I'm a Christian. See? I feel that way. But if to think you're a Christian makes you a Christian, then nobody would be deceived, right? And, right? And isn't that what the Scripture says over and over? Don't be deceived. Right? It tells us what the fruit of true, uh, spirit, true Christianity looks like, what regeneration looks like. And, you know, because as soon as you, if, if because you uh, think you're a Christian, you must be one, as soon as you thought you were a Christian, you would be one, right? That's the whole point of Satan's deception, to make people think they're Christians who aren't, right? That's the whole point. Many people feel sure they're saved and they're not. There are millions of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and Christian scientists and Catholics who. They think they're saved, and they feel like they're saved. They'll tell you, I feel like I'm saved. I believe I'm a Christian. But they're not, right? People say, God won't condemn me because I know I'm a, I'm a, know I'm a believer. They have assurance. I have assurance I'm okay, right? But that assurance that they have in their own mind doesn't necessarily mean anything, does it? It has to be patterned on what the, what the Scriptures say about being born again, right? Confess through the mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, right? And you shall be saved. It's a simple, it's a simple uh, setup, isn't it? But what does Lord mean, right? And what do the words mean? What does it mean to believe, right? To cast your hope upon, right? The saving work of Christ on the cross. That's 
to be regenerated. And these other things, assurance and conviction of sin and, and uh, active ministry and religious involvement and you know, uh, uh, intellectual affirmation and visible morality, those things don't prove or disprove uh, saving faith. And number seven is the last one, and then we'll get back to our topic, all right? <clears throat> a time of decision. A time of decision that we can remember. Salvation isn't a historical event, is it? It did happen in, in space and time, perhaps in the past or more recent past, but by itself, that isn't salvation, is it? What is Christ doing in your life now, right? He delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and placed you into the kingdom of his beloved son, right? And when he did that, he changed the whole life course, didn't he? He took what was, uh, what was dead, Adam, and under a curse and replaced it with this new life inside of you, right? And now you live in this whole new, uh, this whole new thing. This whole new thing's going on in you, right? You're not the old anymore. That old is dead. That's the whole point of Romans 6, first seven verses of it, right? You have sin's residual presence in your flesh, but you're new, right? And so sometimes when I talk to people, they'll say, well, I came forward when I was whatever. And I'll just say, well, what does Jesus mean to you now? What's Jesus doing now? See, that's part of your testimony, part of my testimony. What's, what's Christ doing in my life now? See, it's not just what happened you know, back 25 years ago or 18 years ago or whatever. Okay? People say, I remember the day I came forward. I remember going forward, signing a card. Uh, remembering an emotional response or a day when a decision was made doesn't mean anything in and of itself. It can be part of your testimony in true saving faith if we have embraced salvation as God has prescribed it for us. But those things in themselves do not prove any saving faith. Now Christ's comments to this church in Laodicea now, we're going to get back to that, indicate an unredeemed state. And we see that. Okay? And Christ, you know, it would be great if Christ could just walk up and say, nope, not redeemed, not redeemed, not redeemed, not, right? Just kind of line us up and just... Now, you know you don't have a relationship with me, right? But this is really what we get here, isn't it? We get what it looks like to not be redeemed, okay? A self-sufficient attitude, a self-importance, right? That kind of uh, centering around uh, just me. I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I have need of nothing, right? Those are not comments that come from someone who is redeemed, are they? Because we know that we are bankrupt, don't we? And we know we're in need of everything, and all that we have is a result of God's grace, and, uh, and so his comments that you're miserable, wretched, poor, blind, and naked uh, are stark in contrast to their self-sufficiency. But Christ was able to see through all of that, wasn't he? All right. Now, let's look back, if you would, verse 18, Revelation 3. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich instead of what they have, right? They, they really need true riches that come from the Lord. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, or that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. They thought they were well-dressed, but from a spiritual perspective, they were not. And eye salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. All these things refer back, of course, to the city. We see the nature of the church uh, reflected in, uh, or the, rather, the city reflected in the nature of the church. Medical school, the famous eye medicine they produced, uh, didn't really work for the problem that the church had, which was spiritual blindness. Christ said, I'll give you, uh, I'll make you so you can t- truly see. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. What's the context? Speaking to unbelievers. God loves even the non-believer, doesn't he? And that's the whole point of John 3.16, isn't it? Right? The whole point of Romans 5.8. Right? That's the whole point. God loves those who are unredeemed. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that's how I got in. And that's how you got in, wasn't it? God loves those who have sinned. And he sometimes uses very difficult circumstances 
to gain our attention, doesn't it? Verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, rather than allowing for the common uh, interpretation of an individual, right, because that's kind of sometimes we use that to witness, right? Christ knocking at your heart door, right? Anybody ever heard that? What's, true, what's truly the context of this passage now? If you understand that this is an unregenerate church, it's a church that doesn't have Christ on the inside. He's standing on the outside and he'd like to come in, right? That's the essence of the context of the passage, okay? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's speaking to the church. They had his name, but they lacked any true believers. He's knocking on the door. He'd like to come in. If any member would acknowledge his, his poverty, his nakedness, his illness, his wretchedness, his miserable condition, his poor, blind, and naked, an unregenerate heart, uh, he'd come in. Verse 21, he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. Once again, uh, an oper- uh, uh, placing in a position of judgment, we, uh, a place that we can judge and help the Lord judge. And uh, I know you might not feel like doing that, but the Lord has placed that as part of your part of your future. As a believer, you're going to, to rule with him. You'll reign with him. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You're an overcomer. You receive many of the blessings that Christ received. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's a common theme, right? That's what happens when you're heir to the kingdom. Marvelous thoughts for those the Lord loves, for those who's redeemed. What kind of church is the church at Laodicea? It's the present age for John, present age for us. You can jot these down if you'd like. This is the apostate church. This is the unsaved church. This is the church that thinks they're in, but they're out. church that thinks they're really rich, but they're in poverty. It's a church that thinks they're clothed, but they're naked. A church that thinks they can see, but they're blind. A rejected false church. Each of these has a message, don't they? Each of the churches we talk to and talked about. Let me summarize. First of all, chapter 2, we have a cold Orthodox church. We have a church suffering persecution. Then a church that's married to the world. Then a church that tolerates sin. We have a dead church. We have the faithful church. We have the apostate church. Each of these, as we said, is a real church, which represents churches in all periods of history. And so the message to these churches is a message to all churches. Their reproofs can be reproofs for all churches. Their encouragements can be encouragements for all churches. Throughout all time in which the church exists on the earth and in which Christ moves among the seven lampstands and ministers to the church and there are scenarios that have undoubtedly played out hundreds or even thousands of times throughout the church age until the very present time. All these things repeated over and over again. I believe these seven letters are to be applied to the church today and whatever kind of church. There's a message to that church. There's encouragement to those churches. There's reproof. You say, well, how do we know what kind of church a church is? How do we know that? I mean, how how can we kind of apply it to ourselves? How can we apply it to a church as I've attended in the past? I'll tell you how. A church will fall into these particular kinds of categories when the dominant influence in the church is in regard to one of these areas. Okay, so if the dominant influence in the church is cold and orthodox, the church will reflect an orthodox view, although there might be some on-fire members. There might be some who are not cold, but are still 
uh, on fire for the Lord. If, if the dominant influence of the church is indifferent totally towards God, no production, no life, right? Uh, no salvation's going on, nobody's being baptized, no spirit at work, nobody's being ministered to, that's a dead church, though there may be a few people who have not quite died. See, The dominant influence gives character to the church. If the church is marked by a dominant number of faithful people, going through the open door and taking the word of God out, it'll be marked as a faithful Philadelphia type of church. See, And so, we understand these things, we understand these exhortations, we want to be individually these uh, types where the Lord has commended them, and then we become that corporately too. See? So at the end of the chapter 3, you have the end of the messages to the churches. And we're not going to hear the word church again in the book of Revelation until at the end of chapter 22. And then Jesus simply says to John, go back and remember what I said to the churches. That's the intervening time, see. That's why the, the book unfolds so naturally in very literal sense, because we have this chronology just kind of unfolding before us, right? Hey, John, don't forget. Now, what I've told you is going to still be future. Go back and remember what I said to the churches, which is present for you. The church doesn't appear again until the end of chapter 22. The church is not particularly in view from here on until the church, of course, is called by another name in the millennial kingdom. And what's that name? It's the bride, right? The church is called the bride. Not referred to the church after that. Next week, we'll begin the things which are future, chapter 4. And this is, I love the, all the teaching of the churches. It's uh, continued to uh, mold me and to encourage me and to reprove me uh, every, all the years that I've studied through it. Um, but i got to tell you, I'm excited about chapter 4 and following. There's some just awesome stuff that is uh, sitting there for us to study and sit uh, and, and uh, are there ready for us to come. And uh, so... I'm excited. The world is moving in this direction. The Lord seen fit uh, to reveal a part of Christ's nature and a part of his works that we wouldn't know if we didn't have this book. And we're going to be digging into it and finding out about it in the months to come. All right. Let's be uh, dismissed in a word of prayer, if you would. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you, uh, first of all, for our salvation. We're thankful that um, for those of us who have given our life up to find it and lost our life to save it confessed our sin to you and repented of that sin, recognizing that we were poor and blind and naked and bankrupt. We've asked you for all the things that you promised to give to those in this Laodicean church who we ask for it. Real clothes to be clothed with, eye salve to our eyes. True riches. And we're grateful for that. That we don't take that for granted. It wasn't because of uh, the sharpness of our, our character or... or uh, or acuity, or anything that had to do with us. It wasn't because we were good people that you picked us out. Uh, nothing. It's because of your gracious nature. And you promise that those who seek you find you. And we're grateful for that. Thank you for drawing us. We know that you were at work doing that, and you have brought us into your kingdom by uh, the Father. You say, The scripture says the Father draws no man come, and we know that you've drawn us, and we give you praise for that. And we thank you for the descriptions of the churches, it still exists now. Lord, you know the desire of our heart. We just so desire to be a Philadelphian type of church. A faithful church. Uh, those who keep the word. Who continue to go through an open door of ministry. Carrying the word out. Witnessing. Being faithful to carry out the, your kingdom purposes. That's a church that uh, you have opened a door for and nobody can shut. That's a church that you commend. We'd love to be that kind of church. And Father, if we're not, 
I pray that you reveal it to us. Help us to be as the churches where our deeds were not that great but are better now. As we move into a future where we're desiring very much to let the word be in charge. If we are that type of church, Father, help us never to stray from that path. Lord, I pray that you help each of us to make commitments in their heart right now to be that type of individual which makes up that kind of church. Father, as we go out into our week, we thank you for the opportunities we'll have to minister in your name, to meet needs, to witness. pray that you help us not to forsake those opportunities, as we'll only get this life to do that, and the next to celebrate it. We give you praise, Lord, for uh, all the believers who are here tonight, for those who are downstairs, for the party, for the teens, and the fun they had, for those who ministered in love and in your name uh, for their sake. pray that you raise up a whole new generation of disciples, Witnesses for you, faithful ones who walk after you. Give your praise today in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen.